Dudling and our students. Um, great to be here with you this afternoon to talk about data, uh, talk about Indigenous data sovereignty and Indigenous data governance. So I'll introduce myself properly in a moment um, in a way that's uh, culturally appropriate, but I'm going to share my screen now and we'll get started on the slides. So Yap Lingana, uh, my name is Maggie Walter, uh, Mina Maggie Walter Palawa Lutruwita. I'm a Tasmanian Aboriginal woman from Lutruwita, Tasmania. I'm Palawa. Uh, you can see there at the top, the cool looking dude is my great, great, great grandfather, Manalagena, who came from the top tiny part of Tasmania there, the far northeast. Then there's my grandmother and then there's my father. And if I introduce myself that way, because that um, is a fitting way to, for you to know who I am. Um, I'm also a distinguished professor of sociology at the University of Tasmania, and that also is part of my identity. And in doing so, I will honour, I'm here on uh, the land of the Gadigal at the moment in Sydney. So um, I pay my respects to the Gadigal and the Yoran nations, and also pay my respects to my old people back in Lutruita, Tasmania. So let's have a look at what's happening in the Australian Indigenous research space. There's a lot. So first we've got the brand new, or not so brand new, but fairly new coalition of the peaks um, who have with the COAG, the Coalition of Australian Governing the Gap targets, all 16 of them. Then we've got the Australian Bureau of Statistics and the Australian Research Council, where they now have a new Australian New Zealand Social uh, Research Classification Code, which came out last year, which has a new two-digit Indigenous division, which previously wasn't there. Mightn't sound like much, but that will allow for the first time ever in Australia for Indigenous research to be both counted and analysed. Then we've got the new Code of Ethics from IATSIS, again, um, it's a dramatic change from the old uh, guidelines. And if you haven't had a look, I'd recommend you go in and have a look at the new IAPSIS Code for, of Ethics. Then we've got the Indigenous Evaluation Strategy, which has come out of the um, Productivity Commission, the new Indigenous uh, Productivity Commission, Romley Mokak, which will change the way evaluations are done. Then we've got Mayam Nairi Wangara, which is the uh, Australian Indigenous Data Sovereignty Collective, of which I'm part. And added to that, we've got the FAIR principles, which many of you would be aware of, the findable, accessible, interoperable and reusable, which are now matched under Indigenous Data Sovereignty guidelines with the CARE principles. And we'll look at those a little bit more closely as we get in. So most of you are in jobs where you're dealing with data, and within that, I'll guarantee almost all of you will be doing in dealing with Indigenous data. I want to first just look, before we look at the data, look at the governance arrangements, which are also rapidly changing in Australia. So we have the old uh, United Nations Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous People, which is more than 10 years now since it was adopted, but it's only recently starting to make significant inroads. Then, of course, we have the Uluru Statement from the Heart, and if you look just above the F there, you'll see my signature on that. Um, I was at Uluru and very proud to have been part of that. Again, we've got the Coalition of the Peaks. We've got the new Indigenous Voice, um, which submissions are available now for an Indigenous Voice to Parliament and Government. 
and the empowered communities. So these are just a few of the things that are happening around the governance. We've got ochre in New South Wales as well. For all of these things, for both the changes in Indigenous research and the changes in Indigenous governance that have come or are coming, they're all underpinned by a need for data. Data will make this world go round. So before we move on, let's just have a look at a definition for data. Um, I'm a big fan of definitions, especially in the Indigenous space, uh, because often what happens is that terms in the Indigenous space get adopted and then reformatted to mean something else. So self-determination, those sorts of things have not meant the same things to people over the years. So in the Indigenous data sovereignty space, we are very, very careful uh, at an Australian and a global level to make sure that we have formal definitions so that doesn't happen. So this is a definition of Indigenous data that's informed by the work coming out of the British Columbian Columbia's First Nations Data Governance Initiative, uh, and we work with them along with others. It says Indigenous data are any informational knowledge in any format, including statistical data about Indigenous people and then impacts Indigenous lives at the collective and or individual level. So you can see it's very wide. We're not We'll mostly be talking about population level data in this discussion, but you need to think about Indigenous data as being much more than that. So it's data about our resources and environments, data about us, the socio-demographic data, and data from us, cultural, knowledge, community stories, etc. So the next thing to think about is that when we're thinking about data, and especially if you've been in the quant world for a while, you'll realise that sort of often we take um, statistical data uh, because it's got numeric values as having sort of a fixed meaning that perhaps qualitative work doesn't have. And I want to dissuade you from that idea. Um, I talk very much about the politics of Indigenous data and that no data are neutral and certainly not the data about Indigenous people's lands or resources. So that all are social cultural artefacts. So even though it's recorded in a percentage or a mean or even a coefficient, just because it's in numeric form uh, and is attached to a formula, does not mean that it is any more uh, objective than if it was in words. So all data uh, are subjective and they reflect the realities of those whose purposes they serve. And that's primarily not Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in Australia. So mostly data are collected about us in order to try and understand us from somebody else's uh, definition of what's important to know. And it tends to come out that whatever happens, the data about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people positions us as hapless, helpless and hopeless. And this is real life outcomes. So I've sort of got there on this slide three ways in which this happens. Uh, first is the pejorative portrayal. So nearly everything is focused on problems. So it's what the 5D data, and I'll explain that in the next couple of slides. And so it's always about the problems. And in doing so, that's not to say some of those problems aren't real. This is not to uh, say high levels of childhood illness or uh, high levels of incarceration, the, the stats are wrong. It's to say that they produce a particular data narrative. And that's... Uh, closes in 
the way Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people can be understood, especially by others, but often even by ourselves. They're nearly all one point in time. As far as I know, only the longitudinal study of Indigenous children is an active longitudinal data set about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Nearly everything else is just cross-sectional, uh, even if it's repeat cross-sectional. It tend to be, analysis tends to be limited to frequency counts or bivariate tables, and tend to be a very simplistic understanding. And so if you have very simplistic analysis, it leads to very simplistic and undemanding interpretations. And nearly always you've got the orthodoxy of the dichotomy where we Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are always compared with those that they're not, the non-Indigenous population. And it tends to position uh, Aboriginal data as only being able to make meaning of it if you're able to compare it from data from non-Indigenous Australians. I would argue that the data have a meaning of their own and the sort of data we want is not necessarily easily comparable. So let's have a look at our key concept, which is Indigenous data sovereignty. Again, this is a national, internationally agreed definition uh, and derived from the work of Kukutai and Taylor and Matt Snip back in 2016. So Indigenous data sovereignty are the rights of Indigenous people to govern. So it's about rights and it's about governance, the collection, management, access, interpretation, dissemination and the reuse of data. So it relates to all data and the impact of these. It reaffirms our obligations as Indigenous people to respect knowledge and data there and to recognise data as belonging to the collective. It's premised on data accountability to Indigenous peoples as per the various articles in the United Nations Declaration for the Rights of Indigenous People. And it's also about it has to meet Indigenous priorities and it has to be used to enhance Indigenous collective wellbeing. And that's according to the people about whom the data are being collected. It needs to be us who define what our wellbeing is, not for others. So let's have a look first at all the ways Indigenous data are got wrong at the moment. And before I go to this, I will say that there are some efforts being made by various statistical bodies around the country to change the way they do Indigenous data because we have been critiquing it for a while. They haven't got it quite right yet, but they are working on it, but much, much more. We don't need feeling around the edges, we need a paradigm shift. So we've got a, a data paradox. We've got too much of one type of data, what I call badder data. So it's data that's blameworthy, that infers a complicity. So this is um, data about longitude from where is it from? The health survey, and it compares Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, and it's about drug and alcohol. And as you can see, across all uh, the different age groups, Aboriginal people are much more likely to be using uh, drugs and alcohol. So the question is not is this figure correct, but why was this figure chosen by a person to be the central page of the report? So it's not just about what's correct, it's about what decisions are made around that data. It's about aggregate. So it's always not local, national, sometimes by age group, sometimes by state, but mostly it's national. And yet 
this is what Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander looks like, the population looks like. We have more than 500 First Nations. So if I'm down here in Luchawita, Tasmania, and the national data includes people um, who live right across the, the top of Australia, how useful are those data to me trying to plan programs in Luchawita, Tasmania? Not, not at all. It's decontextualised. It always asks what, not why. So this one's about smoking. You can see again, Indigenous people across all age groups are much more likely to smoke. That's the what. We get what continuously. I want to see more stuff that actually ask why. Why do Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people more likely to smoke age 15 to 27? That's the real meaty stuff. It's deficit. It's 5D. It's about disparateness, it's about difference, it's about disadvantage, it's about dysfunction, and it's about deficit. And so this, of course, here is incarceration rates. And for the life of me, I can never imagine why you would look at those figures from Western Australia or anywhere, even in my home state of Tasmania, and think that just presenting the data itself was enough. Why you wouldn't say, what the hell is going on here? And it's reductive. This is uh, your tier attendance, but again, it is just this comparison of Indigenous and non-Indigenous as, as a half of a dichotomous variable without, without asking what it is about being Indigenous Australia today that leads to all of these outcomes. And so, you know, I, I did an inquiry years back where I looked at the first um, report into um, Aboriginal conditions. And that was 1858 in the colony of Victoria and about the welfare of Aboriginal people. I then compare that with the Overcoming Indigenous Disadvantage reports, and I will acknowledge that the Productivity Commission is trying to change the way they do data, but I really can't tell the difference. So it's a pattern. And if you go to New Zealand and US or Canada or Hawaii, the pattern of what is collected and how it is presented about Indigenous populations in, in all of those places, you'll find it's exactly the same. So that tells you more about the data collectors than it does about the people who, from whom the data are collected. So this is just a little chart looking at that data data and looking at the other side of the Indigenous data paradox, one that we've got far too little data about. And this is a, to a certain extent where you come in. So when you look at data about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people that comes across your desk, or um, you know, it's, it's, you're looking to collect or you're looking to disaggregate or you're looking to interpret, question it. Don't just take the status quo. Have a think about what sort of data is it. Does it fall into any of the better categories? And if it does, how can you minimise those data just contributing to a, a narrative of deficit? So we need contextualised data that's comprehensive. We need disaggregated data. We need contextualised data. We need data that informs Indigenous needs and priorities, and we need data that's available to us. Nearly all the data from the ABS and other places are locked up. They're not available to Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander communities or organisations to actually analyse. All the data are going one way, up to government and not the other way around. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, so some of the things that are happening around there, we have a lot of work happening around big data and open data, um, but I will contend very strongly that just because it's big and just because it's open 
doesn't make it better. So there are all sorts of risks involved in the move uh, to open data. And again, that comes under that FAIR principles, which now have been adopted right across the Western world at least. And in Australia, we have legislation now before Parliament, or it might even have gone through, um, about data sharing and the rules for more open data, uh, within, especially within government administrative data sets. But the first whole draft of that, of that uh, the discussion paper did not even contain the word Indigenous. So how can we move forward when there seems to be this incapacity among people who control the data to even consider Indigenous needs within it? And people are always very surprised when you bring it up and say, you didn't even mention Indigenous data in there, why didn't you? Um, but often they'll say, yes, we should have, but then you say, well, okay, go on, do it. <laughs> and, and they're stuck, they don't know what to do. There seems to be this almost a paralysis of saying we're not used to doing this, so therefore we just will try and avoid it. And here's just some of those risks. So, you know, we know algorithms will come from this. We know already that the use of algorithms uh, become uh, misogynistic, uh, sexist and racist within almost a, a, a couple of hours of being released. And that's because they're not neutral. They're reflecting what they're uh, processing. So this is where we come to the governance part. So this is where I want you to be thinking about where to put your energies. So if we have Indigenous data governance, it mediates the risks and pathways to collective benefits, and it allows Indigenous data collectors and um, interrogators or analysts to actually have a cultural and social licence to use those data, because at the moment, people don't. So let's talk about governance and data sovereignty. Okay, so the question when you're thinking about how we might flip this on the head, and we're not talking again, we're not talking about consultancy groups or advisory groups. We've been doing those since the 1980s and most Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are well and truly over them. We don't want to be advisors or consulted anymore. We want to be decision makers. Uh, and I think that we need to be refusing to be part of advisory boards or, or consultancy groups to get a change in the way things are happening. So we take, what would Indigenous statistics look like? Think about the Indigenous statistics that you know within your own workplace or what you see in the paper. If we were the intended audience and we were the instigators and analysers, they wouldn't look like they do now. What would they look like if they were uh, data were collected and analysed to meet our priorities and needs and aspirations. They wouldn't look like they do now. And what would they look like if they were framed to reflect back to Indigenous people what we define as important to know ourselves? And that's, of course, all the census is. It's reflecting back to the nation what the nation thinks it's important to know about itself. That's not happening for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and we need it to happen. So let's talk about governance. Governance is the mechanism by which Indigenous data sovereignty is delivered. And here you've noted, I've written it down again, that consultation or advisory group is not governance. So we need data that reflects our life worlds. 
what Indigenous life forms look, what's important and what is, makes meaning for Indigenous lives, what is in the embedded lived reality. We need it at the level needed by First Nations communities. And that's one of the first things to come out of the closing, the refresh closing the gap is the need for local level data. It needs to be based on Indigenous defined needs. Again, the new closing the gap targets do a much better job than the original six in actually incorporating Indigenous needs. But of course, there's also struggles with trying to have a national program that meets all needs for all peoples. It needs to contribute directly to Indigenous nation rebuilding, to get our communities and our organisation, the organisations that support them back onto a positive delivery track. And we need data that are accountable to and controlled by those to whom they relate. And this would seem to me to be a basic right as a citizen, to be able to have some access and some control of the data about you and for those who have that data to be accountable to you. So Indigenous data sovereignty is now a global um, grouping. So there's a, a national networks in, uh, well, four countries, um, a bit more since I did this slide. So we've got the Tamana group in Aotearoa, New Zealand. We've got the uh, Indigenous Data Sovereignty Network in the US. We've got the Mayam Naira Bangara Collective in Australia. We've got the First Nations British Columbia uh, Data Governance or the Governance Centre, which are now formally affiliated with our international network, of which um, Mayam Naira Bangara are on the executive of the global data, the Global Indigenous Data Alliance. Now I've got the websites for both of those there and they're in, and I'm happily send the websites if you want to have a look further. And there's new, um, new emerging ones for Inuit and Métis uh, in Canada, especially, and Sami, and also in Mexico. So to move on to governance. Governance is a two-way split. So we have governance of data and data for governance. And those things work really well. And I acknowledge um, Diane Smith from ANU who first came up with that idea of governance of data and data for governance, because it puts it very neatly that the two sides of what we need. So we need governance of existing data so we, we can refute those 5D data of disregard. We need governance so we can tell our own stories from those data and have input into the narrative of how Indigenous people are known. And we need to apply Indigenous data protocols. But on the other side, we need data that can inform our own um, policies and development. We need data for developing infrastructure and we need to design our own measures and indicators because we know that the current almost um, trope of Indigenous indicators and measures just measure a very, very limited part um, of the Indigenous life world or Indigenous worldview and we need new measures and indicators to collect what is important and what is really needed. So back in June 2018, we had a summit where we had 50 Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people from all over Australia come together to um, talk about what we needed uh, and what was sort of the protocols that we would want to be in place around how Indigenous data um, were, were treated in Australia. 
And I won't read all those through. I'll let you read them as we go through. But it's really just a summary of the sort of things we've been discussing up till now. So it's about being empowered, being contextual, being able to exercise control and data that's protective. So let's move to the international scene now. So I know this is a rapid fire trip through Indigenous data sovereignty and governance. Um, but really what I'm hoping today is to get you thinking about data, especially Indigenous data, in a different way. To um, get you to be question when the standard tropes come across your desk. So the care principles have been developed by the Global Indigenous Data Alliance as a companion piece for the fair principles to say, yes, we'll need data that are fair, but we also need data that take care. And so the care principles are collective benefits, authority to control, responsibility and accountability in there, and ethics. And you'll find reference to the care principles in the new uh, IATSIS code of ethics. And they line up pretty well with everything we've got going somewhere. And these are being picked up all over the world and being introduced into libraries and museums and data uh, governance areas, data administrative data areas, to actually, as a way of bringing in some Indigenous data governance, as, as a little bit of a framework. We've had some success internationally, for example, the uh, Special Rapporteur on the Right to Privacy to the United Nations incorporated Indigenous data sovereignty into their recommendations to the United Nations on how rights to privacy should be enacted and um, ensured. And again, it's to say, you know, uh, uh, the right to individual privacy, which tends to be at the centre of the Western thought process and knowledge system, is not directly applicable. Well, it is applicable, but it's not enough in of itself for Indigenous peoples, that we need collective privacy and also that sovereignty over the data allows us to have some privacy uh, and decide what things are open and what things aren't. Again, just as a reminder, we're nearly at the end of what Indigenous data sovereignty is. Okay, I just need people to re-emphasise it and put it there a second time just to re-emphasise it's about rights and it's about governance. It isn't about being consulted or having input. So the question I want to leave you with is how can you support within your own role, within your own agency, appropriate Indigenous data, Indigenous research infrastructure in Australia. What would it look like? Now, that's something that we're working on at the moment as uh, our Myram Nairi Wingara uh, network is working and with, with others. And it's, it's a critical question about having that research infrastructure in place. At the moment, we're doing things, but it's all piecemeal. It's a bit here and a bit there. We need an overall plan and a set of protocols. But have a think about how you might do it within your own job. And just to finish, um, there's those websites again, and also two books um, on Indigenous data sovereignty. So the first one 
is by uh, edited by Tahu Kukatai and John Taylor from ANU, and that's available. That came out in 2016, so it was the first book globally on this topic, um, and that's available free to download from the ANU Press. The second book is Indigenous Data, Sovereignty and Policy, which just came out in late 2020, and that's by myself, Tahu Kukatai, Stephanie Russo-Carroll and Desi Rodriguez-Lombear. And that is available or downloaded by chapter for free from the Routledge site. So we actually got together and purchased open access for that. So we do believe in open data and open access. It's just how it's done that we have issues around. So Wallika, um, I'll stop sharing the screen now. And hopefully um, I've made just that little bit of um, difference in how you think about data and how you think about Indigenous data.